to look at. Is this on? Okay. All right. The snow is not. Keep the snow. Please. We're a little stunned. We'll get over it. We'll be okay. So 15 years ago this fall, Donna and I began an adventure. Some of you know this story, and for those who don't, I'll just kind of bring you up to date uh, real quickly if I can. But we began an adventure of doing interim pastorate, wherein we moved with everything that we had over and over again. And uh, we ended up doing seven in three states over 15 years. And number four was Watoma, where the youth pastor was this smiley young guy named Niall Philia. And I just, I just loved the guy from day one. I remember meeting him. And we had a great time together there for 14 months. And then I came up here with you folks. We came up here with you folks. 1668 Bonac Loop. The house had a name. I don't remember the name, but it was the, the like the guy who built it. Every house in town had a name at that point in time. Remember that? So, anyway, it was the whatever house, uh, the party house. But anyway, and so we were with you for 29 months. And then um, towards the end, we were looking at resumes. And here's Niall's resume. And we didn't think he was willing to come any further north than Watoma. So I was very pleasantly surprised. And he was kind of young and inexperienced, and I encouraged our wonderful search team to give this young guy a really serious look, and you did, and you called him, and, and he's been wonderful, and we've been in touch ever since, and, and now here we are, right? But uh, so that was, that was then, and this is now, and we finished our last interim pastorate at the end of June in Blaine, Minnesota, and now as of September 1st, I'm the church leadership a catalyst for the Forest Lake District, which is my dream job. So don't feel sorry for me. I'm having a wonderful time. It's great to be with you, sort of, kind of, which I'll explain in a moment. But need to get my advertising out of the way. There are a couple of tables out there covered with stuff, as I've always done, of course. All this liter- There are books I'd like to sell you on there, and there's literature about the Forest Lakes District. And there's a sign-up sheet, maybe most importantly, I would love to send you our email prayer letters if you're not already getting it. Some of you are, some of you aren't. And uh, we would like to send you the Forest Lakes District weekly email update as well. So there's a place to sign up for both of those if you want them, and literature you can take and books you can buy. So that's, that's it for the advertising. So we're not going to have any elephants in the room this morning. We're going to deal with the elephant in the room. We have very mixed emotions about being with you this morning. We're thrilled to see old friends and thrilled to see a whole lot of new folks who have come here since, since we left. And we're also very, very sad at the same time about the occasion, just like most of you are. If you're happy about it, like Ian... Don't tell me. I was just talking to him about youth pastor longevity and just forget everything I said. It's just, it's all, it's all gone now. But anyway, um, so mixed emotions. I'm actually reminded of Donna and I attended a funeral a few weeks back of a dear old friend and we saw a whole lot of people we hadn't seen for a long time and had a wonderful time seeing them and an awful time because it was the funeral for a friend who died too young. So 
profoundly mixed emotions. So I told Donna what I was doing this morning, and she said, you're not going to tell them that they can't be sad, are you? And I said, no, they can be sad. I'm sad. You're sad. We're all sad. So we're all going to be sad together this morning. Here we are. So if you will look at the the, the bottom of the picture there, some of you are afraid that your next pastor is going to look like one of those guys. <laughs> Half of you are afraid like that he'll look like the one, and half of you are afraid he'll look like the other one. Yeah, yeah. So, so here we are. You're on a journey. You've been sent off again on an interim journey, a pastor transition journey, and it leaves you feeling like refugees. The refugee slide, if we can have that. Uh, you're on a journey you don't want to be on from one pastorate to another one, and here we are. But here's a great, big, very important truth, and some of you heard me share this about eight years ago, and here it is again. It's still true. God has a way of deploying and redeploying church leaders, we usually call them pastors now, for his own good purposes. It doesn't just happen. God has a good plan for us in moving leaders in and out of his churches. So like it or not, here's the reality. The reality is pastors don't usually stay for life. They're with us for a few years. You know, the six, seven years, I can't figure out the math, that you've had Niall here. You know, that's that's about the average today. It's about the norm um, it's highly unlikely that you're going to get a new guy who's going to be here for 20, 30 years. It happens. Sometimes it shouldn't happen. doesn't usually happen. So our interim pastorates, the pictures are, are interesting. The one at the top, I'm pointing to the side of the U-Haul truck where it says, where will you go next? And I've got my moving face. I don't know if you can see that from where you are, but I look really tired and depressed and awful. Because we're in the midst of moving. Have you moved lately? Not, not fun. So, and then the other picture was one of our smaller parishes where they wouldn't even let me in the door. So, so don't talk about getting a permanent pastor. Okay, I scold people for using that language. Our only permanent pastor, we sang about him, is Jesus. And the rest of us are all interim pastors. Some of us just stay longer than others. So that's the reality of it. And because this is reality, because God does this, I want to take you to a passage of Scripture some of you have been to before with me years ago, but it's, it's still great. 1 Corinthians 3. Would you turn to 1 Corinthians 3 or dial down 1 Corinthians 3 or download 1 Corinthians 3 or however you want to get it, get it. And there's an insert in the bulletin you can put some notes on as well. In 1 Corinthians 3... We're going to see a series of three illustrations, and then I'm going to give you two admonitions, and I'm going to leave you praying two prayers. In the cross-training hour, if you care to come back for that, we're going to deal with the emotional side of this stuff. In this, in this time period, this I don't want to say hour, that'll scare you. In this service, we're looking at the thing from 30,000 feet, from way up here, from God's vantage point. And then if you come back to the cross-training hour, we're going to get up close and personal and we'll deal with the emotions of losing a spiritual leader that, that we love. So, 1 Corinthians, 
is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, who is one of the, I call him the founding fathers of Christianity. He's writing to a church which he had started five years earlier. The church had lots of problems. Its main presenting problem, that's the problem that you mention when you go see the counselor, was their disunity. Just a few verses into the letter, he starts nailing them for their disunity. It was really bad, really bad. The underlying problem, however, we're going to get to in just a minute. It's right here in this passage. If you look at chapter 3, verse 1, he's actually already been dealing with the disunity thing for two chapters, and he's still on it. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Brothers, and he included the sisters, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men, which means people who are not regenerated, not born again? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not? And again, he means acting like mere men. So he sounds pretty angry, actually, about their immaturity. It's childish. It's just childish to boast about, to make ourselves feel better by associating ourselves with a superstar preacher, a superstar teacher, somebody you listen to on the radio or a podcast or whatever. It's even worse to divide ourselves up over that. You know, I'm, a, I'm the, in the John MacArthur camp or the Chuck Swindoll camp or the Francis Chan camp or whatever. It's childish. It's childish to judge our teachers and preachers in the sense of thinking that we can evaluate the worth of their ministries, thinking we know who's going to get rewarded the most at the judgment seat of Christ because he's going to share. We don't know. Chapter 4, which we can't really get into, he's going to say that when God does evaluate us and reward us, he takes into consideration the very motives of our hearts, which us humans don't see. So we are just not qualified to even say, this guy's going to get the most rewards that are more than this gal over here or whatever. We just don't know. So in the case of these folks, they were divided up over Paul, who had started their church, who knew probably more about Christianity than anybody on the planet at the time. God had downloaded into his gray cells an enormous amount of information about the Christian faith. And he, he doesn't think of himself as being a great preacher, but he just loved to download that on congregations. And, and if, if they let him, he'd just go all night long. And uh, not, not much to look at, history tells us. They say he was short and chubby and bald. And, well, anyway, I won't comment further on that, but... Um, Short, chubby, and bald, and then he was followed in what we would call a pastorate there by Apollos, who apparently knew the Old Testament extremely well and was wonderful to listen to. He was a sermonator. He was somebody you could just listen to all day long. He was so eloquent. And then there were a few people in the church who had heard somehow the Apostle Peter, and they liked him better. And then there were some people, the folks who had gone to Bible college and learned the fine art of spiritual one-upsmanship, 
They knew how to say, well, I am of Christ. So, I thought, oh, that kind of ends the conversation at the coffee time, you know, when you say, I'm of Christ. So, divide it up, and he's unhappy with them. He's not happy about it at all, but he wants to help them. So he gives them three illustrations to help them understand the differences between their spiritual leaders and what's going on when God moves them around. When God moves one pastor out and another one in, what is happening? He wants to help them. So away we go, and we're going to start with the third illustration first because I'm just weird. I guess that's the reason. But the third illustration is the shortest. It's the most simple. There's really only one point. In the third illustration, churches are compared to temples. If you look at verse 16, verse 16, he says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple... God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Now, he's not talking to us as individual Christians about our bodies. He's talking about the church as a temple of God indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And he's likening pastors to priests. We're not priests, but he's likening us to priests who work in the temple. And if you've read your Old Testament, you know that in Old Testament days, if a priest behaved badly in the temple, that was really bad, right? Crispy critters, just like that, you know? God did not like that. So, the one implication here for you folks is when you're looking for a pastor, of course you want one who can preach well, and of course you want one with people, people skills, who loves everybody and, and lets, it, lets it be known. But even more importantly, you want a pastor who fears God, who knows that God is holy, and the Bible is holy, and the church is holy, and he's going to be very careful, and he's going to remember that forever. As a young pastor at one point, I kind of landed by providence of God in a, in a pretty neat new pastorate. The church had just voted me in unanimously, and it was a pretty healthy, happy place. And uh, I was kind of rejoicing in that. And an old, wi- older, wiser denominational leader said to me, he kind of pulled me aside, and he said, Brian, you've got a good thing going here. Don't mess it up. And I've tried to remember that. (laughs) Whatever else I can do for a church, I don't want to mess it up. So that's what you want. Okay, back to the first illustration. In the first illustration, churches are compared to fields. Will you look at verse 5? Verse 5. And at this point, I'm going to read really slowly. And I want you to see how much you can notice. Because there's so much in these paragraphs. He says, what after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed. Paul was a church planter. Apollos watered the seed, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants 
and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. And we have to stop right there. So, did you notice God is the only owner of every church, of every field. Churches do not belong to pastors or denominations. They don't belong to board members. They don't belong to the the guy who's given the most money or the gal who's put in the most hours in the church. Uh, Every church was purchased with the very blood of Christ and belongs to the triune God alone. God does not give stock options to people who work for 20, 30, 40 years at a church. It's still, after all that time, it's entirely his, not ours at all. Got that? So we have no business. We are posers. We are pretenders. We are, we are fraudsters. Is that a word? We're fraudsters if we say, this is my church and I'm not going to let you mess it up. You know, or I've worked here for 40 years and I'm not going to let you wreck my church. Not your church. Not my church. So did you notice from this paragraph, God sovereignly, providentially, that's all by himself, moves pastor teachers in and out, on and off the field. I planted, Apollos watered. This is God's doing. And you've probably noticed God uses all kinds of different things. Circumstances which are not circumstantial, they're providential. God uses all kinds of things to move one pastor teacher out of a church and another one in. He uses illnesses of the pastor himself, family members, mothers, fathers, conflicts, counsel from board members, counsel from denominational leaders, new opportunities, new passions, circumstances which are not circumstantial to move us on and off the field. These teachers are fellow workers with one another. They're not competitors. They're not in a contest. They have specialized tasks to perform. We are planters. We are waterers. We are harvesters. We are fertilizers, weed pullers, whatever. God is the only one. Did you notice that? God is the only one who makes any church grow anywhere. I don't want you to treat us disrespectfully. But in one sense of the word, it's in verse 7, uh, we're nothings. <laughs> we're, compared to God, at least, we're nothings. We're not, we're not anything, he says. In fact, in this illustration, we're migrant workers, right? Isn't that what he's picturing? Migrant workers, you have some come in the spring to do a task, and others might come in midsummer to do a task, detasseling of the corn, whatever, and then others come in the fall, and, and migrant workers are very high-status people in society, right? No. They weren't then. They're not now. And that's us. <laughs> that's us. Here's our claim to fame. It's in verse 9 that we're God's fellow workers. Uh, farmers are God's fellow workers, and some of them know it. And you gardeners, some of you are big gardeners, and you know that you're God's fellow workers, and that's kind of thrilling for you to be God's fellow worker. You plant it, and God makes it grow. And uh, the, the pastor, the church worker, the missionary, who gets to do the work of ministry full-time rather than part-time uh, is doing the same thing that every church, every church volunteer is doing. We just get to do more of it, that's all. But what a privilege we get to work with God. 
God will reward each of us appropriately in verse 8. God sees what we're doing. He knows. He cares. There's more on that in chapter 4. It's hard for many of us when our pastors or other church leaders who have taught us leave. But from 30,000 feet, from God's vantage point, it's really just one migrant worker getting done with his task and moving on, and then another migrant worker coming onto the field and doing his thing. That's what it is. And that brings us to the second illustration, which is my favorite. In the second, churches are compared to buildings. Now, churches are not buildings, but in this illustration, They're being compared to buildings. Look at this wonderful paragraph. We have to back up to the beginning of verse 9 to get a running start. But here we go. So we're back to verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, comma, God's building. Here we go. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. Paul did not have a Norwegian... uh, Lutheran mother like mine, she would have scolded him for saying he's an expert builder. So, anyway, he was an expert builder. Someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day, probably a capital D in your Bible, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. In other words, it's possible to do a whole lot of work uh, with the wrong motives in the wrong way and just see it all burned up at the judgment seat of Christ and get no reward at all, except you still get to go to heaven. Wow. So, by implication, God is the owner, the only owner of every church again. God is the general contractor. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. For 2,000 years, Jesus has been building his church. We get to work with him. That is our great privilege, a continuous building program. We pastors and teachers are subcontractors. We're not the contractor. We're the subs. And we're moved on and off the job site sovereignly, providentially, by God. Again, God uses all kinds of circumstances which are not circumstantial to move us on and off the field. From God's vantage point, when one pastor gets done with his work and moves on and another one comes to take his place, it's no more tragic, and I'm not unconcerned about your feelings, but it is no more tragic than the rough carpenters getting done with their work and moving on and the plumbers coming to take their place, the plumbers getting done and moving on and the electricians coming to... I may not have the order here right, guys, but I think you get the general idea. The electricians get done and the finished carpenters come and take their place and nobody stands and weeps because the plumbers got done and they've moved on. Not usually. You get the picture. So... That's the way it is from 30,000 feet. 
The great concern of God for these subcontractors is that we build on Christ. That is, we're building a church with people who are really born again. And we do our work with reverence for God. We do it carefully, prayerfully, empowered by the Spirit of God, building on Christ and with Christ, not doing it in our own strength. Interim pastors, by the way, are remodelers. We're remodelers, if we can have the next slide. So so interim pastors are, are kind of like the This Old House crew, if you ever saw the classic This Old House, where they show up and they talk to the homeowners, they see how much money they have, and they hear about their dreams, and then they inspect the house from bottom to top, right, bottom to top. And then they sit down with the homeowners and tell them what they really have to do with their money, which may not be as much fun, and then they go to work and they do the job, and that's what interim pastors do. In some churches, the remodeling that interim pastors do is minor, and in other churches, it's major. So, three great illustrations. In light of what we've seen from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, about what God is doing when pastors come and go, I have two admonitions for you. And the first one, not surprisingly, please trust the one in charge of the journey that you're on. Trust the one in charge of the journey. And then you can enjoy the ride. I really enjoy flying on big commercial aircraft. I think it's fun. I don't like airports, but the rides on the planes are fun. Uh, I had one ride in a little plane, a Cessna 150, and between you and me, I was terrified, okay? I wish I could go back and do that again and not be terrified and enjoy it a little more. But uh, one of the downsides to not trusting God is we miss so many blessings. We miss so many things He wants us to enjoy along the way. And some of you have heard me say before, on the, on the road of life, get out of the driver's seat Give up the illusion of control. You have almost no control over anything, including your smartphone. Get in the back seat. Let God drive. Roll down the windows. Smell the flowers. Be like a trusting child. Let's go for a ride. Be like my sister. We were going somewhere. She ran to the car and she said, first one in is a rotten egg. Be like a dog that wants to go someplace in the car and he jumps in and has no idea where you're going. If you told him, it wouldn't make any difference anyway. Trust the one in charge. It's his temple. It's his field. It's his building project. He loves it more than you do. Trust him. Got to tell you about Jeff again. Some of you heard about Jeff about eight years ago when I shared this. But in our Grafton, Wisconsin church, we had a couple new members um, the husband was Jeff, and he was joining the church. He'd only been a believer a few years, and uh, we were in the process of making him a member. And he said, now, Pastor Brian, Pastor Brian, you're not going to leave, are you? And I thought, hmm, <laughs> what if he knows something I don't know? It made me a little nervous. I said, no, I don't have any plans to. Why, why would you ask? And then he told me his story. He'd become a believer, and he joined a church, and he liked the pastor. A few months later, the pastor left. new guy came. He was there like two, three years, and then he left, and another guy came. And in five years, he had three different pastors. And he said, that was hard. That was really hard. You're not going to leave, are you? I said, I don't have any plans to. So a few years later, 
God changed my mind, and I realized I was leaving. And I realized I better talk to Jeff right away before he hears it from the pulpit. So I sat down and told Jeff as gently as I could that we would be moving on. And Jeff said, oh, that's all right, Pastor Brian. I was a new Christian then. (laughs) I didn't realize. Now I look back at it and I realize when I joined that church, Pastor, I'll call him Pastor One. Pastor One was there and he was great, but his time was done and we needed Pastor Two. And Pastor Two came and he was just the right guy for the next three years. And then he left and Pastor Three came and he was just the right guy for the time. So I'm okay, Pastor Brian. And I was so proud of Jeff, because he hadn't even heard this sermon yet. And he figured that out. Good for him. Good for him. So, trust the one in charge of the journey that you're on. I beg you. And then second admonition. While trusting, while trusting, don't let anything or anyone keep you from growing up as a Christian. I'll try to make this short, but... It was a startling realization for me when I first studied this passage 15 years ago. And I realized that this church had had two of the best preachers in the world at the time. They had Paul, again I described as knowing more about Christianity than anybody on the planet, followed by Apollos, who was somebody just wonderful to listen to. And yet... And yet, and yet, these people were a bunch of babies, weren't they? They hadn't grown up at all, in spite of having two superstar pastors. And by the way, they had been believers about five years. And Paul expected them to be grown up after five years. How you doing with that? (laughs) So, kind of shocking. Kind of shocking. We tend to think that, well, it's the people in the church with the eloquent pastor who are going to be the most mature Christians, right? And the people with the pastors in their churches who are not so hot, well, they're excused from being grown up. You'd expect them to be babies. And the truth is that your maturity as a believer in Jesus or immaturity is not a function of the superstar quality of your pastor at all. It's an inside job. And now we have great big studies that have done that have shown us statistically they have demonstrated that the one Christian practice, habit, discipline, if you will, if you like those terms, the one thing that makes believers in Jesus grow up into Christ more than anything else It's not going to church, don't leave, but it's not going to church, it's not hearing people on the radio, it's not prayer, it's not service, it's spending time alone with God, at home, in the Bible, applying it to your life. That's it. That's it. Whether you're a brand new believer, an old, 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 old believer, wherever you are on the spectrum, the thing that makes you grow the most is your own personal time with Jesus, which has very little to do with the superstar quality of your pastor. So I'm saying, don't let anybody or anything keep you from growing up as a Christian, including people offending you, 
Oh, really? That happens? People offending you? Pastors coming and going? Pastor you dearly love leaving? Pastor you don't like very much coming? Your church growing or shrinking or staying the same size? Uh, Whatever. Whatever. Don't let anything stop you from growing up as a believer in Jesus. If you are determined to grow up as a believer, nothing can stop you from becoming like Jesus. Absolutely nothing. I have met some godly Christians in some pretty poor churches. And I've met some really poor Christians in some really great churches. It's amazing. So here are two prayers I want to ask you to consider praying. Don't pray them by rote. But if you can pray these for real, that'd be a wonderful thing. And the first one sounds like this. God, you have every right and my permission to rearrange my life and my church at any time in order to to fulfill your plan for your glory. God, you have every right and my permission to rearrange my life, rearrange my church at any time in order to fulfill your plan for your glory. And then the second prayer, which you may want to pray, sounds like this. God, I want to be a Christian who receives your word with joy and grows mature in Christ, no matter what happens or who my pastors and teachers are. I want to give you a minute to pray one or both of those if you are ready to. And I will do the same, and then we'll sing about it together. So let's pray. If you need to keep your eyes wide open, you can do that. The prayers are also on the insert. I'm going to ask the band to come back and do the song always because that will be just right. Thanks.